Welcome back to another episode of the Individuation Podcast. My name is James Malamus. We've got a great episode for you. Today, we welcome Dr. Alan Guggenbull to discuss his book, Men, Power, and Myth, The Quest of Male Identity. In this episode, we will dive into the second chapter. It's a great discussion and we can't wait for you to hear it. If you enjoyed the Individuation Podcast and want to support, make sure to rate the podcast five stars on iTunes and wherever you get your podcast. So without any further ado, Dr. Al Samurai, take it away. Welcome to another episode of the Institute for Conflicts Individuation Podcast. I am Dr. Lahav Al Samurai, and this is our uh, second week with Dr. Alan Guggenbuehl from our sister institute, um, the Institute for Conflict Management and Mythodrama in Zurich. Um, Dr. Guggenbuehl, Alan, welcome back. Uh, I wanted to, uh, so we're, we're going to get into the second chapter and um, the title is Myths, Vessels for Nation, Culture, Profession, and Family. You put a lot of crap in there. But anyway, I w- <laughs> I'm going to get into it. It's been overloaded. <laughs> so um, let's start here. Um, and uh, you, you pick up. I'm going to read from page 34. It's in the middle of the page, it says, there are two psychic forces at work in every human being. On one hand, the psychological, and on the other, the mythological. Each of these forces acquires specific images and symbols and creates its own stories with which to express and assert itself. Psychological symbols are different from mythological ones Psychology finds a symbol in the realm of the personal, our individual history, our personal life situation, and our circle of acquaintances shapes us as psychological beings. At the same time, however, we are the product of the life and tradition of a given region and its spirit, the impetus towards civilization, the attempt to come to grips with a wider field of action has its effects on us. It is the energy I have called mythological. Do you want to pick up from there? And... Yes, I can say something to it. I mean, it's very important to see what I'm pointing out in that chapter, particularly, is how does psyche or soul express itself? What is actually the what is the what are the metaphors the way soul expresses itself? So I know as in Jungian psychology, the term soul psyche is very important. And James Hillman mm. took up actually the term soul, mm. a term which actually is not widely used, especially in psychology. I have mm. the impression that psychology abolished that term. But what I want to state in that chapter is the way soul expresses itself can actually be categorized in two different categories. Okay. Of course, this is a very rough category and of course it blends in each other, but the one category is actually our personal life. By our personal life, I mean our parents, siblings, where we brought up in a family, issues in the family, traumas in the family, the quality of relations, maybe all these things, of course, are rich, um, uh, rich, uh, rich. Me- we have rich memories of, 
we, uh, we carry it within ourselves. So it's, we all have a personal life. And that is very important. And the notion is, of course, in psychology, that our personal life affects us. You know, we could be traumatized. We could be kind of empowered by our personal, by the relation. And I think this is a very important issue, something which Carl Gustav Jung, Freud, and hundreds of others, of course, um, researchers have actually been pointing out. And therapy actually is, is a way to, to, to help. But what I'm trying to point out, there is another realm. Psyche doesn't just express, manifest itself through our personal lives with its codes, with its experience, but to something like which I, which I would call the collectiveness, the collective life. That is what I understand of the collective life. That is the bigger group we assign ourselves to, the bigger group we belong to, meaning maybe the nation, the village, so the bigger stories. And my point is that we're not just affected and we don't just reflect. When we reflect on it, it's something which has to be considered. So we're not just affected by the personal, but also by the collective. And there, the language is mythology. Actually, the way to understand the collective the way actually to find out what the collective wants is through a mythological language. It's a different language. What I mean by mythological is that the terms, the metaphors, they derive from another source. So it's not personal experience. We wouldn't say, well, my father was always called to me, and so that was a problem, of course, so I couldn't relate to that. So we'd say, well, maybe my insecurity is a result of me being, growing up maybe in a surrounding, in a culture, which people felt insecure, which was maybe victimized, in a culture where people felt victimized, or maybe I feel self-assured because I can identify with part of the culture which kind of uh, follows the hero myth. So it's a completely other approach. So on page 38, you say, um, first there's a quote by Pablo Nurada. If you, I'm gonna read it out. Um, this is the quote you put in. I will never forget my visit to the hydroelectric plant that lay above a blue lake mirroring the fantastic Armenian heaven. When a journalist asked me how I liked the time-honored Armenian churches and monasteries, I answered the church that I like best is the hydroelectric plant, a temple by a marvelous lake. So I think you were starting to talk about the myth. Yes, I was starting, and that I took as an example. I mean, there's many examples like that where someone saw something semi-sacred, something and added energy in something which is actually very profane. It's an electric plant, it's about electricity. But he was apparently to what he's written, he was actually touched by it. He was invigorated by it, he felt his passion. You know, he felt it in the electric plant. And of course, it's from 
a personal point of view, this is a bit strange. Mm. How can an electric plant that's just a, you know, a, a technical, mm. not, not gadget, of course, but something technical, technical apparatus, yeah. how could someone actually be touched in his soul? And I think behind that, first of all, I think it's important that we identify such identifications because it's something which is very common. Mm. And I will, how I will point out later, more common with men than with women. Mm. So it's something to identify with some kind of approach, technical approach or approach to life mm. or institution or nation is something which seems impersonal, but actually it reflects or it contains soul um, energy mm. from the particular, you know, for the particular person. So Pablo Neruda, he was kind of completely taken by it and it gave him energy, gave him maybe even a sense of what he was doing. He got up, wow. And so, and it's very interesting, taking the examples of electric plants, this particular, I felt with, other man. I remember once I went with students. I was in the Valle, mm. the Valle, that is mm. a, a canton of Switzerland, mm. very mountainous, very impressive. And in Valle, they have enormous electrical plants built inside the mountains, you know, with dams. It's so fascinating. And I remember that I was there and I was fascinated by this huge, you know, wall and all these pipes that actually, that, all this whole electric plant, which was in the mountain, actually, in, in granite, you know. So yeah. I was fascinated by it. It kind of took me. Yeah. And I remember I organized an excursion. Yeah. And they would, we, they said we were invited, so you can see everything. Out of this, I think there were about 30 students, yeah. three volunteered to come three were interested mm. and mm. these were the three men mm. and all the women it was some kind of eye-opener mm. they were very intelligent mm. knowledgeable women you know they were interested in life but it really didn't care to kind of uh, uh, visit a whole afternoon a power plant mm. i mean that's boring. It's mm. just pipes and machines. And this is experiences like that. Led me to the idea, well, what's behind this? Why is it? You know, this is also an expression of something. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is also something which is, connects us to the unconscious. You know, the super collider in Zern um, has been there's a super collider that basically splits atoms. You guys have it in Zern. It's under um, yeah, in Geneva. Yeah. yeah. So it goes all the way across France and Italy and comes back through Switzerland. It's massive. Yeah. It's fascinated me. I've I've never been there, but it's fascinated me. Every time I hear a story come out of there, it um, takes me somewhere else. I start to think about. What are they doing down there? What are they trying to do? Because they're splitting atoms and um, they've made um, several discoveries. They have like scientists from all over the world. It's kind of like a um, spectacular kind of. So I'm thinking of that when you're talking about the power plants. 
This is, yeah. uh, and I've never, I've never like physically been there, but every time I hear a story, it uh, hooks me. I start to read about it and I go through this uh, period where I am hooked into this other world. Um, and then I come back <laughs> until another story comes out. And that's so, that's actually, you know, I'm, I'm a psychologist, as you know, and I, I start off with the way I experience human beings, how they function. That's the basis. Yeah. I'm not an ideologist, I'm not a historian in that sense. And I've just been observing and experienced again and again that this kind of fascination for machines, for power plants, what we think is something which is a lot more common with men. Now, the counter argument is, of course, well, this is all about socialization. This uh, is just, you know, role models, stereotypes. Actually, women can be just as fascinated by it, are just as fascinated. I mean, this is just kind of a, the, 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 uh, the heritage of the patriarchal, patriarchalic society, yeah. which kind of um, hinders women to allow this. This is the argument. But I've been hearing this argument since I was 10 years old. Mm. This is, was the main mantra, which we heard everywhere. Mm. And I've been experiencing very intelligent, technically intelligent, also women, which you know, knew a lot about their techniques, mm. they just weren't that invigorated. Mm. So they were competent, completely competent, completely competent in their field or in, even when they were technicians, but this kind of, um, kind of um, getting such energized, this, this is actually what started to fascinate me. And there, my way of wording it, my way of, uh, Explaining it, it has to do with a certain myth. Mm. Of course, this is the myth of Hephaestus. This is the myth, you know, making, creating energy out of the nature, kind of controlling energy. It's kind of like a kind of a Hephaestus hero myth. And this is actually what they've been identifying with. And there, I think it's important to think we have a mythological approach and a psychological approach, different approaches. So you say and in order, age, oh, sorry, go on. No, no, in order to understand human beings, it's something we should, which we should differentiate, mm. actually for men and women, not just for men, but men and women. But as so, I will point out later, it's something which somehow men are more aligned to up until now. And I think um, on page 40, in the middle of the page, you say myths do not result, this is part of our discussion right now, from conscious thought processes or rational decisions. We do not bring myths into existence by decree. Rather, they come into being independent of our intention and consciousness. It is a collective process the psychology of a social group, of a political system, or of a media that creates myth. At the same time, the selection of a myth does not result on the basis of a decision-making process. Rather, myths select us. Actually, we are sized by myths, by those myths with which our collective identity, individual past, and personal characteristics confront us. 
as autonomous forces, they seize us and force their re reality upon us. Witness the stories of the peaceful island inhabitants of Bali or of the omnipotence of design. Yeah, what I'm trying to point out there is actually myth has a tremendous impact on us, an impact of which we are often not conscious of. And I think that differentiation is very, very important. We, of course, usually believe in the supremacy of the consciousness. Mm. We kind of uh, think, well, our rational way of thinking, that's actually the basis of our actions, of our decisions. We're actually in control of ourselves, more or less. This is the notion we have. This is also the goal we try to achieve, of course. Mm. We try to... Uh, you know, be conscious of what is happening. The problem or challenge we have, though, is that again and again, we're kind of um, overwhelmed by a myth. Mm. And myths overwhelm by actually then um, determining our way of thinking, mm. our rational, ratio, rationality. So actually the myth... The, the, the interesting thing about myth is because they're collective, they take over. And then we kind of believe or we kind of share a myth, but still we usually believe in the supremacy of uh, our rational kind of conscious thinking. Mm. This is a trap which happens again and again and again. This is something we can observe everywhere. I mean, not just in history, during the Second World, of course, with the, this atrocious Nazi regime, with the thought there was Superman. This is something we can again and again see, that myths are usually lived concretely. We really think they are. That's the way it is. We think this is, for instance, and they're important, of course, they're invigorating us, instead of making us active, you know, but actually it's some kind of collective way of belief system, which is the collective, which takes us, you know, which invigorates us and in which we participate. And the myths can be, of course, um, very different. For instance, equality. Mm. Equality is a very important myth. Mm. But of course, as we all know, equality is a myth. People are not equal. Mm. But this grand story, this collective belief system, equality must be made. This invigorates us, makes us do something, and we really think things can be e equal, equality is possible, but actually it's just a big story which invigorates us and gives us a kind of legitimization. Mm. And there's many but other things. Does it move us forward, does it not? Yeah. Does the, the, the myth, uh, doesn't it propel us forward and to change? Yeah. It propels us forward. It makes us active on a collective level. Of course, they're, very, they're also very destructive myths. Mm. We had this stuff, uh, you know, like I just read about uh, Canadian Indians, which have, to, have been westernized and have been 
it took the children of the Indians in Canada and put them in, in boarding schools and mm. dressed they them up. In Australia also. With the in Australia also, many countries. Yeah. And uh, the indigenous people were thought as being primitive. Yeah. And they were more civilized. Of course, this is also, this is the Western civilization, this grand myth, yeah. which has a lot of good sides, but can also lead to terrible Misdeeds. Well, yeah, I mean, it broke these societies. It broke their myths. It broke their traditions. Yeah. It broke their sense of meaning in the world. It broke who they were as uh, consolidated as a group of people who had a myth. That myth was uh, shattered. It was overwhelmed. It was um, destroyed. It had way. another myth. It had other myth mythological stories. Mm. It had another collective. Yeah. And it destroyed them because yeah. it, their, their um, myth, mythological background was not recognized. Yeah, correct. So, yeah. So their psychology was wasn't recognized. They were not accepted. So their energy was not accepted. The energy and when was your not energy accepted. is not accepted, then this is where um, you start to lose. Um, your own energy for life, for vigor, for interaction, for being, um, disease hits, um, illness, uh, alcoholism. Well, we've seen this with the native populations in the United States. Um, they've been decreasing throughout the history of the United States in terms of numbers, in terms of um, every time. The suicide the rate is the highest. Suicide rate is the highest. Uh, alcoholism rate. Uh, yeah. COVID actually kills more of them than it kills the regular population. Yeah. Again, um, it's a continuation of um, a catastrophe. Um, and they lost their big myths. Yes. Which kind of was a container for them on a collective level. Yes. It was not compensated by special psychology. And this is you know, this is what happens often also when they do kind of a, a Westerners work in other countries, you know, and they're doing a deal of developmental project. Mm. Instead of seeing, wait, what are the myths they believe in? They kind of try to come from our myth. Well, when you, when people are economically better, you know, when you have enough food to eat and enough uh, place to live, then everything is better. But this and is it, our myth. And it's an individual myth. And a lot of these cultures, yeah. collective cultures, they don't respond to the individual myth. They respond exactly. to the collective myth. And uh, their collective myth has to do with something of, a, uh, of all the people in the group working towards um, some um, goal. I think uh, there's a part where you talk about a famous Swiss who doesn't really exist. It's a story that's made up about um, this guy. Um, I've, I have it somewhere here um, that I want to get to. Uh, being Swiss, what it means to be Swiss and how he, oh, here it is. Uh, and every country has its myths that bolster national identity. This is on page 51. In Switzerland, we have the myth of Arnold Winkler. In 1386, at the Battle of Sempek, he is said to have thrown himself on the lance of Leopold's third soldiers with the words, look to my child and my wife, I will do you some daring deed. Thanks to his selfless action, the Swiss succeeded in breaking through the lake 
uh, the Habsburg lines and repulsing their attack, even though in all likelihood, no man named Arnold <laughs> ever existed, his heroism was official, recorded in 1533. So um, the, the creation of the, the, the group myth of uh, using an individual to identify the group, a um, mythological figure that uh, their heroic deed uh, created an identity for the people who would uh, succeed, in this case, um, the Swiss breaking the Habsburg lines. It's important is to see, of course, in the 16th century that was created, you could say out of a propaganda desire, because you know, the, the opponents which Swiss had fought then, they were all kind of noblemen. They were kind of judges, you know, lords, and sort of, uh, they were very important men, they had a lot of medals. And uh, when actually they had a battle, you know, the, 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 a lot of arbitraries and stories about the noblemen from all these different uh, kingdoms or, um, to, you know, uh, came to, were then disseminated. Oh, this Duchess Herr von Grafenstein, and so he fought. And this actually annoyed Swiss because they didn't have any hero stories, nothing. They just fought like wild. But even if they won, they didn't win on the so-called mythological field or the propaganda field. Mm. And so they decided we create, or they somehow it appeared. I don't know if it was done consciously. Well, we, we create a peasant, you know, a peasant who kind of sacrifice himself. So the peasant who kind of does. So that was a, now myths can't be just construed deliberately. But what happens actually when something, when there's a core story around, you know, it suddenly can develop into a myth. It's something which you can't really, you know, you can say, you, if you're a propaganda minister, you can't just do it. But somehow, when the feeling, when it, it's taken up, and this happened in Switzerland with Winkelried, everyone knows Winkelried, and Wilhelm Tell did not really exist, but they were mythological, they were, they were developed into mythological figures. Mm -hmm. Wilhelm Tell is a very important mythological figure, mm -hmm. although he never, he never really existed. And other countries have the same. In Scotland, they have this odd figure of Bonnie Prince Charlie. Okay. Bonnie Prince Charlie, who, who was a buffoon, who was actually... Uh, I was what? Uh, what, what? How do you call it? Bu you know, bu buffoon? I've mispronounced it probably. Uh, he was kind of a, a fake. Buffoon? No, it, it doesn't matter. It was a fake. It was, more okay. he was a prince, of course. He was of royalty. But he lived in Rome and he was a playboy and he was completely incompetent. He wasn't really interested in Scottish independence. He just wanted to have a kingdom, you know, in the north and he, he completely blundered everywhere. He was actually a complete fake. I mean, and, but he's now a hero. He became a hero, symbol of national uh, identity, you know, and uh, he kind of body Prince Charlie. And there are many songs in Scotland Bonnie Prince Charlie, way do done a day. And the songs are sung and they can romanticize. Mm. But it's 
now we'll call it, it's bullshit. <laughs> or it's myth, you know? And that's the interesting part. But it's also, at the logical level, you can see a lot of the psyche, of the Scottish psyche. They chose royalty, a royal figure to fight for them. And that they, they failed to criticize the royal, the royal uh, royalty. And I think this is something which is still, you can feel at the core of the Scottish, if I'm a bit, uh, maybe this is, um, this is a bit arrogant if I talk like that, but it, I feel like the, in the Scotland, people are um, disciples, not disciples, but uh, they have to be loyal to some kind of sovereign. It's still very this, is, uh, this is why they are still part of the United Kingdom. This is why they have a hard time breaking away. They have a hard time breaking away, but it, it doesn't really help them because they always no. believe in loyalty. They believe kind of in their authority. They have kind of, uh, in the passport, in my British passport, it was uh, the name, the loyal subject, a subject of Her Majesty the Queen, mm. which is kind of, and it's written, that does not exist. There's nobody's a subject of some sovereign, you know. And I think in the United States, neither. In the United mm -hmm. States also has a, it's very similar. So there you see the different myths, the different psychology in some ways, the different the way soul expresses itself through these figures, you know, which actually then are mythologized and which uh, serve in order to have a national identity. So on page 54, um, I found this interesting. This is, um, you say, as a Zuricher, or is, I'm guessing, how do you pronounce that? Zuricher? Zuricher. 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 You, you miss out the A. Zuricher. You say Zuricher. Zuricher. Working in Bern, I am repeatedly confronted with the specifically Bernese myths. I have noticed that if I want to convince someone of something, I have to go about it differently in Switzerland's capital. While in Zurich, we expect a person to make his argument straight out with a dose of aggressiveness. In Bern, such a thing is improper. It's a, a, a part of the reason I find this fascinating because this is a, Switzerland is a very, very small place. And uh, geographically, um, everybody is very close to each other. One must first welcome to the other person with conversation and exchange of small talk or of a cup of coffee before one comes to the business at hand. Enough time must be spent to get to no one's opposite number. From where does he or she come? What is he or her family background? Who are his or her acquaintances? At the beginning of an encounter, the main agenda is very much in the background since it is important to know with whom you have to deal. Social position, family origins play an important role. In small details like these, the moral formal conventions of Bern make themselves known in contradiction to Zurich, a city influenced more by myths of business and industry. So, what, what, tell me about this experience that you have. In, um... Now, it's important to see that myths have different layers. There's maybe a layer where a myth is, you know, you have national myths, myths, you have local myths, and you have very 
even family myths, you know, so it's very different aspects. And the thing is, and what I try to point out there, that if the regions, of course, have their history, mm. and Switzerland is very small, of course, but Switzerland has a long history, like many countries, mm. so it's a long background. Mm. So actually, the, the you know, Bern was a, um, a, a, a canton which had a lot of, where the aristocrats actually were dominant. Mm. It has castles, it has noblemen, it has so-called burger. You know, they even divide the citizenships. They have burger and burger. Like, you know, it was just one vowel is different. It's like you would say citizen and tradition. Mm. So it's, it's very funny. The burger, of course, they are the, the ones who are more important. So it's a, it's a different cult, culture, which is actually um, the, the basic myth is Behind it, the bit, meaning the axiomatic story, people are defined by their background, by where they come from, by the name. That is actually how we understand someone. If we want to connect to someone, we have to kind of follow that routine. So in Bern, I experienced, and this is something which is not observable, uh, doesn't experience in a superficial level, but when you get more entangled, get to know people. I realized that in Bern, you know, this what you described, the way one addresses someone, if one wants to achieve someone, one has to have a different strategy. And I wondered, where does this come from? And actually comes from this completely different, of this different history. Zurich is a town which, you know, a lot of immigrants had always since years, a lot of different people, immigrants, industries. So it has a completely different dynamic. And so, so actually what you've done and what you want is more important. So it's actually more the entrepreneur, you know, it's actually the industrialist that is important in Zurich. And this is, you can, you can feel it. And what I would point out that myths, you know, big, collective stories, patterns, which define the pattern of behavior, which define the way one perceives things and the, which also are the basis of values, the different reached have the different myths. And when people live and work together, of course, in an international company might not be the same, these myths suddenly emerge. And suddenly you're confronted with, with something which you, if you don't reflect on it, you're not aware of it. I mean, one in Zurich would say, well, these Bernies, they're all boring, they're slow. They don't talk, you know, what the hell? I mean, I've been- Let's get on with it. What? Let's get on with it. Let's move it. Let's get on with it. Then they would say, well, we don't know. Yeah, but listen, they're lazy. No, that's the people in Bernies, they would say, these are arrogant, loud talkers, you know. uh, Obnoxious obnoxious, you know, they, they, they have no sensitivity. So there's a misunderstanding because the myths are different. Mm. What one adheres to unconsciously. So is it, is it a misunderstanding or is it a, um, a, a, the, the irritation between the energies? It's a, basically, it's of <laughs> course, it's an irritation between the energies because they get energized in a different way. Yeah. That, that's that's the, a, and, actually and the Your problem. energy is not pushing me in that direction. I am pushing yes. this energy in a different direction. 
Because when you when someone has the same myth, you somehow have uh, the the notion or the experience of togetherness, sameness, yeah. joining, yeah. understanding. So if the Bernese wants to have a cup of coffee, and um, the person from Zurich is like, "Come on, let's get this over with. I really have shit to do." Um, the Bernese is going to say, "Well, this is the way I do shit." This is yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it, it, it would say, "Well, this is insensitive," and yeah, we. Have to look at things in details. Yeah. Why are you more important yeah. than I am? Why are yeah, you? Don't you you're why is your agenda uh, needs to be pushed more than my agenda? Yeah, it's it's you know, the the people are the very good uh, in in um, organizing things, managing something. That is actually the talent. No, no, step after step. No, we don't have to make it too fast because we don't make any rash decisions. You know, because this is dangerous and there's a lot of mistakes, so let's make it secure. So they're very good in handling things. But in Zurich, they say, well, no, let's let's risk it. Let's try it. Okay, well, this might work, it might not work. So it's a completely different attitude. And this, of course, and you could see it in all of Europe. I yeah. work a lot in, in Vienna, mm. and in Vienna, people flatter each other. Mm. And you have to get used to it. They say, oh, it's so nice that you're here. Great, we really enjoyed what you said. It's superb and everything. So, and you go out and eat and drink. It's very um, it's kind of- It's it sounds, it sounds fun. It sounds fun. It's actually fun when you work there. Uh, there yeah. a, a connection. But there's an other side. Mm. It's usually, you know, there's a hidden side, mm. the intrigue. Yeah. manipulate mm. and i'm sorry to say there's always the danger of cheating <laughs> so it's it's a completely different culture but i'm not judging it it's just yeah. a completely different yeah, you culture. have to understand the culture otherwise uh, if you if yeah. you walk if you walk there and get blindsided it's not the culture's fault that you got blindsided you should have learned yeah. the myth so and yeah. i go on yeah no i express it with the term myth yeah. I do it because this is actually the collective story which carries a group of people and it makes it more understandable. Mm. You know, the myth, of course, in Austria is they had the Austrian Hungarian Empire. There's a still dream of, you know, the, 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 the Kaiser, the, the, the Kaiser from Franz Josef. And so you, you can actually go in the museum in, in in Vienna, and then I think it's in Schönbrunn, you can go out there and there's a big room, a big room, and it has a big glass, uh, so glass showcase, and middle of the glass showcase, there's a small tape, tape recorder. Mm. And then you can stand, and I think it's the only uh, thing, exp exposition, uh, which they show, and then you can press the red button, mm. and then you hear Franz Josef, the former emperor talking. You hear his voice, imagine. And what he says is, Grüß dich Gott, gnädige Frau. That's all. He says, no, hello, little, hello, uh, all the best. <laughs> Something like that. You know? Just that, that's all, that's it. <coughs> that's all the speech. But I saw people there and kind of listening to the emperor, his voice, Franz Josef, who was very benevolent man, and he actually took care according to the, he was actually always got up early in the morning, went to his desk and took it, you know, he was actually not a malicious figure, 
But to hear that voice mm. is actually they tuned in to the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. That is American Wilson destroyed everything, of course, <laughs> after, after the First World War. He kind of broke everything up. Um, some people in Austria are still mad at Americans because they broke up grand empire there. So that's a myth. You can feel it. You can still feel it now when you work with uh, people in Austria. So uh, on page 58, um, under family myths, so first par uh, the paragraph goes, families too live in myths. Closer inspection of the values and goals of the family often bring to light stories that serve to legitimize the family's behavior. Unquestioned truths shared by all the family members, family myths often revolve around specific periods in the family history that all recall pros prosperous or difficult times when seen in retrospect that give the family its sense of identity. The myth can spur family members to extraordinary efforts living up to one's heritage or lead to a conscious dis uh, distan distancing. The myth itself contains energy challenging the family to react. A colleague told me this story. In my family origin, we held the, high, the value of physical labor. Sitting all day at a desk did not count as real work. My family believes they knew what it meant to work. My, grand, my grandmother's father was killed by falling tree when she was eight years old. With her mother, she had to care for her brothers and sisters. Thanks to an iron will, great effort, and a profound belief in God, she was able to survive this time of deprivation. She was a woman who knew the perseverance and hard work were the only remedies for hard times. My colleague's family mythologized his grandmother's life. Her myth hovered over his family, reminding them that while life is difficult and trying, it can be mastered through the right attitude. I think that is a, an example of where a myth is blended with you know, the mythology and the psychological. Mm. Actually, that was a myth which this family had about the great-grandmother now, great-grandmother, went to dire difficult times and that was, uh, was very strong, but no one knew her because she was dead long ago. Uh, but um, kind of they, the other, you know, the, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, they still derive some kind of meaning and energy from this background they had. Although, because we never met her, they live in completely different circumstances and they're well off now. But actually that story that still remained, you know, but, and what is important, these family myths can be uh, positive, they can vicar people, but they can all be, also be destructive. They can also have a, make it to the family men, for the family memory very difficult. That they suddenly you know they have to uphold the myth, live in accordance with myth. I have another example of a family in Zurich, and their myth is where we are is the top. Mm. We are also always the top. Mm. You know, their family then said they are the top. And actually, they had a long line of people who were important, so-called important, or maybe they chose, you know, every family actually has different 
if you go back to the grandparents and great campaigns, you can actually, I think in my great great country, the uh, parents stole stole sheep in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. So, but they didn't create our family myth. It's something we more kind of probably is not recorded. Those, are, those are the family myths that are kept internal. Yes, it can yeah. turn. So, you know, we create a myth. What I observed, something which I think is interesting, but this is just a personal observation. This is not something I can kind of empirically value. But I heard, I mean, um, I remember that a long time ago, I would go to the United States and a lot of people, they uh, kind of derived their, um, themselves. They said, well, we actually derive from Mayflower, mm. you know, from the very first immigrants. And uh, I bet people said we're wasp, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. We're actually, you know, completely white background, European background, you know, Northern European, Scandinavian background, you know, that's where they derived from. And there's all these stories. That was a long time ago. What I observe now is, and I just met an American who lives nearby, um, uh, a month ago, and then I talked to her, and we talked about the Indians, and said, "Well, actually, I also have Indian blood. Mm. My great grandmother, and so." And then the story came, and it's interesting that now, and I think that's a very good sign. A lot of people kind of identify that they also have some Indian connection. So for me, that's a sign of integration. You know, it's actually a good sign mm. that, you know, if it's true or not true, I doubt it, if it that it's true with a lot of people, because we have a similar phenomenon in Switzerland, mm. where for a while it became, or it still is posh, or kind of, uh, people started to say they have some kind of gypsy blood. Mm. You know, well, I have a great, great aunt, a great, great grandmother, and she's a gypsy. And it actually, it, these are family. They books. used to be. They used to be negative. Now it's more of a positive. Yes, it's got positive. You know, I have a wild side. Mm. I have an unintegrated side. Mm. These are families. We have a family myth in our family mm. in Scotland, yeah. which says, "Well, we're actually descendants of people from the Spanish Armada, which mm. kind of uh, escaped to Scotland and then mingled." with the Scottish people, mm. and they were mostly from Central America, you know, mm. because they were the saviors. Mm. So our personal myth is we actually have Indian blood. Mm. But these are the family myths. Yeah, It's usually, if it's true or not true, is... Um, it's, it's, uh, the, the importance of uh, whether it has a historical fact, bay, uh, fact in it is no longer um, meaningful as much as the story. I mean, it would be meaningful, but you can't, you, you can't even, check it. Even, even if you had books to show that, the story is always prominent. The story is yes. where the energy is. It's not where, um, let me show you a picture of it. It's more of, this is who we are. Now, yes. if you doubt me, you go to the museum and take a look at a picture of it. Yeah, yeah. It's a story um, which is important, which is, serves as an identifier. Yeah, I mean, uh, in my hometown of Samara, we uh, trace our lineage back to the prophet. And um, our grandmother was a uh, Persian princess who 
um, was forced to uh, marry one of the prophet's uh, cousins because um, the Persians um, had lost, uh, the Persian empire was crumbling and the, the Muslims were taking over and to tie into the royalty and to promote peaceful integration, they forced one of the daughters of uh, the king of Persia at the time to marry. And thus uh, we have uh, a grandmother that comes from royal blood and we have a, um, a saint for a grandfather. So this is how, you know, the, the yeah. woman, this is how the, the myth kind of revolves around these. Um, and, then, and then if somebody argues with this, it, like, oh yeah, we have also a uh, 500 year old uh, library, um, you could go, Read up. <laughs> you can check it. Out. Yeah. You know, uh, starting from the great grandparents, you can't really control it anymore exactly. because there's so many. As you can yeah. stop fantasizing, <laughs> which is great. I mean, that's, what I'm saying, it's it's not a bad thing. It's no. because we actually need myth. Yeah. It strengthens us. It gives us a background. It gives us a lineage. You know, we shouldn't actually make fun of it. No, 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 no. As uh, we do, we don't uh, make fun of it because when we are in um, crisis, exactly, it, yeah. that energy is what props us back up. Absolutely, absolutely. Look at who you are. Look who you come from. Yeah, yeah. Are you? You're not going to let this get in your way. No, no. So this is uh, so on page uh, sixty-six. Um, I like this part. This is where you talk about uh, monster chasers. Um, you say the world contains uncanny regions that we can only penetrate with the help of courage, strength, and much patience and a fighting spirits. Without the Loch Ness monster, without the animation of this myth, these men would hardly spend months waiting patiently in the wilderness. The monster chasers are following an archetype. Like anyone else who is dedicated to a cause or a profession, these archetypes, these fundamental patterns of human perception and behavior lie in the depths of the human soul as thus positions or tendencies. We recognize archetypal behavior as much in psychology as we do in mythology. These basic dispositions of human behavior express themselves, however, differently. In the realm of psychology, the archetypes manifest themselves through personal history and individual symbols. While in mythology, they express themselves through the collective and the arenas of myth. Do you want to expand on that? Well, um, actually, I've now written that 20, 25 years ago, and this is important because then I had um, I observed that there were there were actually monster searches. I don't think things exist anymore because of technical, you know, no, development. No, 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 it's changed to uh, we still search for monsters, but they're aliens. Yeah, they're aliens. Yeah, yes, we, yeah, yeah. Aliens. We, we still we still search for monsters, but there's um, someone else. Well, because yeah. I had a I was once in Scotland, and then I was in Loch Ness, and this impressed me. And then I met a, a man in a caravan. And uh, he was he was had a boat, small boat, and binoculars and other gadgets, you know. To and then then I talked to him, and I realized he's been living at the Loch Ness monster for the last ten years. Mm. He was a Royal Marine in um, the Navy, but the, um, in, the, in the army, and then he uh, 
you know, he got um, pension and then he decided every morning he would search for the Loch Ness monster. Mm -hmm. And he was perfectly sane, you know, so well, I don't know if it really is, but mm -hmm. this is my task now. So I, I was, and I realized there's a lot of people like that, mm -hmm. you know, spending their life to search something which one cannot control, something which comes from a completely different realm, something which is frightful. And I think that's one of an, an archetypal myth. Mm. Of course, this nowadays it probably expresses itself in a different realm. Mm. As you said, maybe aliens, maybe some- Well, yeah, aliens because they, we don't know what they look like and we know yeah. they might be around and um, so, yeah, so but the monster, the notion, the monster is always there. It's the notion that we there is something around which is completely unknown, comes from a different. I talked to someone from Venezuela sometime a long time ago, and he said he wants to go to the jungle of Venezuela and, and uh, study the, some kind of mountains, volcanoes, and they have very sort of thin volcanoes, and inside them there should be creatures which derive from kind of pre-Dinosaur-Cambria age, long time ago, and they survive there, and they only live in the dark, mm. and they have not been discovered yet. Mm. And his um, project was to discover these creatures who lived in the dark, mm. in, the, in the funnels of, of the... Of the of volcanoes who are not active anymore. That was his fantasy. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's true, you know, what he says, but I realized this is kind, this is kind of searching for something unknown, undiscovered. Of course, nowadays it's a bit more difficult because we've, we have satellites, we've seen actually everything. So we have less unknown spaces. Yeah, we, uh, but we still have disappearing planes. We still have planes that yeah. really disappear that we can't seem to find. Uh, the, the Bermuda uh, Triangle. Airliner, the, the Malaysian airliner. There was also one out of Indonesia that disappeared and nobody knew where. Yeah, it was. yeah, yeah, that's true. <clears throat> so, um, well, thank you. It's been enlightening. It's been yes. uh, roller coaster. We too. kind of talked about. Uh, um, myths of culture, uh, myths of being, of family, myths, individual myths. Um, we, we've talked about um, different aspects of what it is and how we understand the world um, from both a male and a, a female perspective. Uh, on, on our next chapter, we're going to go into gangs, violence, and longing why modern education fails uh, with boys is the title of the chapter. But this is a really important chapter because is, we yes, have a important. severe problem in the schools yeah. in the United States. I think it, yeah. um, this is a cross-cultural issue Absolutely. around the world uh, yes. for how to uh, educate boys, how to work with uh, young people, young boys yeah. to help them integrate into society in a less conflictual way because they're yeah, integrating in a very conflictual way. We have a, quite a few problems. Alan, you had a comment um, you were saying? No, no, that's nothing. That's, that's what we'll be talking about next time. 
Yeah, so it, I, it, this is this is a huge enduring fascination of violence and what the background is. And so this this is this point in particular is kind of the hot topic button of the day around the world. Um, yes. And uh, Dr. Gugumbio uh, Allen's been uh, working uh, with uh, these populations for many many decades now. And uh, I have also, um, I don't say that with uh, uh, great cheer because I think I'm getting white, but anyway, um, it is great to have uh, Dr. Gigabule and uh, we will see you next week for our next chapter of Men, Power and Myths, The Quest for Male Identity. Dr. Alan Gigabule, you wanna say goodbye to our listeners? Okay, goodbye, I hope you will send. Explainable? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think everybody got um, the basic ideas. Interesting yes. ideas from our discussion. Okay. Thank you. Okay. And we'll be back. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Individuation Podcast. We hope you enjoyed hearing from Dr. Yugin Buell and Dr. Al Samurai. We would also like to thank Alan for taking the time to join us. We hope you enjoyed the second chapter from Men, Power, and Myth. Tune in again next time to the Individuation Podcast for another episode soon. We at the Institute of Conflict greatly appreciate all of you listeners. Please share the podcast with your friends and spread the word. If you would like to help expand our community, like us on Facebook and Instagram and give us a five-star review on iTunes. I'm Sonia Mahmood and you've just listened to the Institute of Conflict Individuation Podcast. We'll be back soon.